You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So I'm Dr. Jim Dorasso, a dermatologist in Las Vegas, Nevada, and one of my wishes is that all of you find the Derms and Conditions podcast that we've been doing now. Um, we're, we're into our third season, a third year, uh, that you're finding them beneficial. And that's really important to me and to the team that puts them together. So we hope that they have been. We hear that they are, and we hope that that continues. Today, I'm going to be bringing you an episode where I'm flying solo. Uh, periodically, I do that after hearing a lot of information from different people at meetings, reading, talking to people on these podcasts, a lot of things come to mind. And I really want to focus on some therapies that I think there's some information that's important that you may or may not be familiar with. And one of this, one of these is the use of alpha agonists, topical alpha agonists. We have two. We have topical bromonidine and topical uh, oxymetazoline. There are some differences between the two of them in terms of the the, the sub-alpha uh, sub receptors that they interact with. But the bottom line is they're designed to reduce the persistent facial erythema that's due to the dilated vasculature, right? Not related specifically to the redness from papules and pustules. But there's an important aspect to the use of alpha agonists, which are applied each day, and over a period of time, usually they'll kick in with an hour to a couple of hours, and you'll have the decrease in the persistent facial erythema that will usually go for a good 10, 12 hours or longer, but then it comes back, and you have to apply the medication the next day. Both of these agents were studied being applied once a day. An important factor that really wasn't a primary endpoint, but was something that was observed over a year's use with either agent, topical bromonidine or topical oxymetazoline, and the solutions that are designed for use on the skin, the solution of the cream designed for use on the skin, is that if you look at the baseline erythema, that diffuse persistent facial erythema, in the very beginning, before the start of the study, and you look at it on the last day, after 52 weeks, the baseline before they treated on that last day. Overall, the magnitude, the severity of that baseline erythema goes down across the, the group that's treated in the study. So there's some sense that you're resetting with the continued use of the topical alpha agonist every day, and that vasoconstriction that you're allowing to occur with their use that you reset the baseline of the amount of, of erythema they have each morning when they wake up before they utilize the medication. And that's a very important concept because hopefully we're resetting or we're having influence on the disease progression. Because a lot of people will use these agents, PRN, only when I want to, you know, I'm going out and I don't want to look as red. But I think it's really important if you're really trying to treat all the different manifestations of rosacea, that component of it, to utilize an alpha agonist every day and hopefully see over time that that baseline redness diminishes. Another area that I think is important to differentiate when we talk about antibiotic use and we hear about antibiotic stewardship and, you know, 
antibiotic resistance. And to some dermatologists, it's like, you know, I don't really know that it's something that I see or that I'm that concerned with. Others understand it. When we have a patient use a topical antibiotic or a systemic, usually we're using an oral antibiotic, you're going to have a selection of agents that are that are of, of bacteria that are responsive because they're more sensitive to that antibiotic. So ones that are less sensitive are going to emerge and you have a selection pressure leading to the emergence of resistant strains. And then you can have some other mechanisms whereby continued exposure can select out some resistant organisms. So there are two concepts that have been discussed. One is um, anti-inflammatory dose doxycycline was what it was initially called, but now we call it sub-antibiotic dose doxycycline, which is FDA approved for papules and pustules of rosacea. And initially, it was a 20 milligram twice a day of an immediate uh, release doxycycline. And then eventually, the modified release to 40 milligrams once a day uh, became FDA approved specifically for rosacea. Okay, papules and pustules of rosacea. Keeping in mind that this therapy was initially developed, the original brand product was called Periostat because it was for periodontal disease. We know that when you give uh, tetracyclines and certainly with doxycycline, you have some anti-inflammatory effects that are unrelated to their antibiotic effect. And one of those effects is to inhibit collagen breakdown. And that was noted in the gum tissue, in, you know, the gingiva of individuals. And it was developed to try to assist in preventing breakdown of collagen of the gingiva, right? And that's where it started. And then noticed by some individuals that people that had rosacea, papules and pustules, that improved. So this therapy eventually got into dermatology. So now looking at the subantibiotic dosing, there were a variety of studies done out of Stony Brook by Dr. Golub, where he looked at several different analyses to look at the, the anti-inflammatory effects and found a breakpoint with doxycycline that he wasn't able to find effectively with the other tetracyclines, right? And there's a dose below which you're not getting what's felt to be significant antibiotic activity. It's not necessarily zero, but you don't see the progressive emergence of several different, in this case, doxycycline-resistant strains, but you do see the anti-inflammatory effect being sustained. And that has been proven for papulopustular rosacea with particularly that 40 milligram modified release doxycycline. Studies that were done over a prolonged period of time showed that there was no, what was believed to be relevant or any significant emergence of resistant bacteria, right, that were tested in the mouth, tested in the GI tract, tested in the vaginal flora, um, on the skin. So that's where the idea of giving something that can help reduce papules and pustules of rosacea and get around selection of resistant bacteria came to light. And I still think uh, that is very important. And there is data on long-term treatment of utilizing only that particular therapy to try to maintain control of papulopustular rosacea 
without a topical agent. Now, that sounds like heresy, but there are some people that do better with taking you know, one capsule a day, for example, than necessarily utilizing a topical agent regularly. So you you do have that option, and I think you can feel comfortable that you are obviating the emergence of resistant bacteria to a significant degree. Now, there's also a concept, and there's a lot of data to support that, quite frankly, you know, several references. There's also the concept of narrow-spectrum tetracyclines, with the development of saracycline. And that's really the only new agent that we've had come to light was FDA approved on a weight-based dosing with saracycline, oral saracycline, patients with acne uh, vulgaris down to the age of nine, right? Nine years of age. And looking at it from a microbiologic perspective, it's narrow spectrum as compared to doxycycline and minocycline, which are approved as antibiotics for the treatment of a variety of different infections, right? right? And so these are agents that have a broad spectrum of antibiotic activity. They're certainly used for acne and sometimes for rosacea outside of the FDA-approved um, minocycline, which is an extended-release minocycline, or the subantibiotic dose doxycycline. Other than that, they are grandparented for acne. They never receive formal approval based on large-scale studies and phase three studies, but they're so widespread in their use and they're accepted as a standard of care. But when you give someone immediate release doxycycline at an antibiotic dose, right, which is typically thought of as more than 50 milligrams a day, or minocycline, in a formulation that's not one of the extended release formulations, right? You are going to get emergence of resistant bacteria and it's not necessarily selective. It, you know, it doesn't spare a lot of gram negatives or gram positives. It's very broad spectrum. Saracycline is narrow spectrum. It's still antibiotic, but it's activity is primarily against gram-positive organisms. So that would be the um, the C. acnes, which used to be uh, P. acnes, that we're targeting in acne because it's only approved for acne. It's not approved as an antibiotic. It was only evaluated for acne, just like extended release minocycline was, right? But it spares um, gram-negatives significantly. And that's based on MIC evaluations and some other studies that were done looking at microbiologic profiles where if you give saracycline, it spares gram negatives. It spares also several different anaerobes, right? And so the GI tract microbiome is felt to be spared with saracycline, at least based on the MICs, which is something that's important because we don't want to disturb any microbiome, especially the GI tract. Now, there are data with other antibiotics like quinolones, uh, you know, it, it extended uh, activity penicillins, minocycline, et cetera, where when you give these antibiotics and you get resistant organisms in the GI tract, they can persist after the antibiotic is stopped. Even azithromycin, this has been shown in some compartments. You have those resistant organisms persisting for several months to even years. So that's the basis of saracycline being a narrow spectrum tetracycline agent.
So that is a differentiating feature and something to consider, though we do need more data. We do need longitudinal data. The other thing I want to discuss is Hidradenitis separativa was a disease that for years when I saw it, except when there were milder cases that tended not to seemingly be progressing and becoming more severe, and I can control them with intralesional triamcinolone injection and chronic antibiotic therapy, et cetera. You know, it was, when patients came in and they had any significant disease, it was heartbreaking. And the struggle was, I was having difficulty really helping these people. They're in pain. Uh, they get scarred down in areas. It's in the axilla. It's in the groin. Sometimes it's on below the breasts, right? And it could even be more diffuse. And it's very, very difficult to treat. It was heartbreaking. And a lot of times I felt like I really wasn't helping patients very much. With the advent of anti-TNF agents like we've had adalimumab, uh, but now we have anti-IL-17 agents, right, that are knocking at the door for approval, FDA approval, that based on the data, to me, look very significantly effective for hidradenitis separativa. But my concern is with any of these agents that we get FDA approval and we understand their use, Overall, they're very, very safe. They have some considerations. They are expensive treatments. They clearly are so much better than anything we've had before in really improving the disease and significantly suppressing the disease. Now, my concern is the way guidelines are written, and if you look with hidradenitis, when they're talking about Hurley stages, Hurley stage two of the three stages, you're already seeing scar formation. And with hidradenitis, you're looking at the skin. It could look normal at the surface, or you may see some older lesions that have resolved, some pigmentation, etc. You don't know what's going on under the surface until the volcano erupts. And at that point, it's likely too late. They already have some scar formation and some sinus tract formation. And you can certainly see that in some cases, especially if they've had the disease over a period of time. My concern is, is that guidelines typically for diseases, typically wait until you see the problem before you initiate the patient. When you have a disease like hidradenitis suppurativa that causes sinus tracts and scarring, I don't want to wait till I see that problem because the horse is already out of the barn and running way in the distance away from when you can close that door. So I think we're going to have to pay a lot of attention, especially as more agents come along, like we have uh, with the anti-IL-17s, right? That we really need to be looking at initiating therapy earlier so we can look down, look at suppressing the disease to get it under control and sustaining the control of the disease. Much like we're doing now with biologics for psoriasis and even atopic dermatitis. We're not only treating that peak of the roller coaster ride, we're treating that disease that's really there every day. It may be what lies beneath or what is less active but it's something that they have every day of their life. So we're not only controlling flares, we're actually treating the disease itself. My concern is still a lot of these patients are going to get the therapy too late because the guidelines are going to be written in that way or the FDA-approved 
prescribing information is going to be written that way, and there's going to be pushback on earlier prescribing. So that is a concern I have. I think especially hydradenitis because it does scar. It does lead to a lot of pain. does lead to sinus tracts. Early treatment is even more important, I think, with that particular disease. So I do want to end with a discussion of a topic that we hear a lot about. We hear a lot about atopic dermatitis, for example. And if patients are not adequately controlled with topical therapies, prescription topical therapies, or previously used agents that that they may have used, even if they were some of the older immunosuppressive agents like cyclosporin, methotrexate, or corticosteroids intermittently, that it's time to think about utilizing a monoclonal antibody, right? One of the ones we have like tapilumab, now we have tralokinumab, lebrikizumab is knocking on the door, or one of the Janus kinase inhibitors that we have, like abracitinib or upadacitinib, right? And here we have agents that really have dramatically improved the quality of life of these patients that have very severe itching, extensive disease, been on that roller coaster, that frustrating roller coaster, you know, getting to the point of utilizing too much systemic corticosteroid or just can't use enough topical corticosteroid, right? Because of limitations on how long you can prescribe it over the wide body surface areas. Even newer non-steroidal agents that we have are going to be limited to some extent by the body surface area that they can cover, right? So now we're going to these systemic agents, but we often hear about with dipilumab because it's been around for six years, right? And we've had it. And it significantly affect, uh, it significantly helps many of the patients approve down to six months of age, right? So it, it has a tremendously successful track record of success and overall very good safety. But we do have some patients that occasionally may ha- have problems re- with it. Maybe they get uh, some form of diffuse erythema or the red face that we do see some cases of that that become difficult or conjunctivitis that isn't mild or doesn't diminish with time or is difficult to ad- adequately control. Fortunately, uncommon, but we see these situations, cutaneous eruptions, or they're just not responding adequately based on the clinician or the patient's complaint about the symptoms that they have, moving them on to something else. And that's where the Janus kinase inhibitors have really become a part of the conversation. Now, they can certainly be used. Those agents can be used in patients that didn't necessarily previously utilize a biologic. That's based on individual assessment and discussion with the patient of the benefits of those drugs working very fast, having what looks like the highest efficacy data with the higher doses of those agents especially. So they certainly have a definitive place and they do shut down itching very, very rapidly and successfully. There are data with both upadacitinib and abracitinib that in patients that had been treated with dupilumab, that if they have had an incomplete response or some other difficulty and they're switched to one of the Janus kinase inhibitors, that they'll get an incremental improvement in their response. So there's certainly data to support that. However, what's not talked about is if you have a patient, let's say, that's using dupilumab and one of those situations comes up, can you switch that patient now to tralokinumab? Now, tralokinumab is an anti-IL-13, where dupilumab is anti-IL-4 
and anti-AL13. And that does seem to correlate with some differences in, in maybe sometimes the efficacy, but even sometimes some of the reactions that patients may have, right? Now, anti-IL-13 is certainly effective in atopic dermatitis, and we now have a collection of case reports that are appearing in the literature in patients that, for whatever reason, uh, dupilumab was no longer being used, or some cases where they developed problematic conjunctivitis, where when they were switched to tralokinumab, they were successfully treated in terms of efficacy and did not have the conjunctivitis that they had with dupilumab. Now, tralokinumab, in the studies, there can be conjunctivitis, but it's not necessarily going to be those same patients. There are a collection of case reports that show that. So that gives us another option that we need to look at more. Even if they started in tralokinumab and they didn't have an adequate response, you know, switching them, or if they got conjunctivitis, switching them to dupilumab. And I've not seen cases of that reported, but that may be a potential option or the option of Janus kinase inhibitors. So my take-home point is we really have to have an open mind because we're going to run into patients that have a variety of different scenarios with any of these drugs. And we have other options that may be very helpful and successful in these patients. So stay tuned. We really have to look at this in more detail and hopefully get more studies and even good case report uh, selections that and reports that help us. There was even one patient that had difficulty with dupilumab with some erythematous eruption, which changed to upadacitinib, and they had difficulty with cutaneous eruption. And they responded to tralokinumab. One case, an N of one, but we have to have an open mind in going in all these different directions. So I hope that helps you in, in thinking about some of the therapies that we use. And I hope you continue to tune in to Derms and Conditions because I will have my usual sequence of tremendous speakers. You're not just going to be stuck with Jim Dalrasso. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at dermsquared.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at D-E-R-M-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D.com. Podcast at dermsquared.com.